0: dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple hey everyone it's reed before we get started i just want to say thank you for listening but now i need you to share the message share the lincoln project podcast if you haven't already rate it five stars share with your friends your family anyone who you think might be interested as always all i could say is thank you keep on listening and now on with the show Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Brendan Ballew, a federal prosecutor who served as Special Counsel for Private Equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. Prior to that, he worked in the National Security Division of Justice, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. His new book is Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, and it is available wherever fine books are sold. He's a graduate of Columbia University and Stanford Law, and is coming to us today from Washington, DC. Brendan, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You know, as I noted right before we started, I did work for corporate America for years, as do many current and former political consultants, because, you know, something's got to fill in the space between campaigns. And, you know, depending on the industry, some were spend all the money you need, others were do what you have to, But it was always the ones with the most money who were most concerned about the comma in a bill or a semicolon being in the wrong place. And often the private equity guys were involved, but they didn't pop up until like it was a do or die situation in a legislative deal. It could be at the state level. I did a lot of work in California. Obviously, it could be on Capitol Hill. But you knew that somebody was really worried when you got a call from the Carlisles of the world or the Black Rocks of the world, right? Because now it's like you have to be on the phone with these people for whom this is in their portfolio. Maybe their bonuses are tied to it. So take us through the genesis of this book, because for me, even though I spent a fair amount of time enough to know how this stuff works, tell us how private equity became the raging bull of American capitalism.
1: Sure. Well, it's a great question. And thank you so much for having me. And I should, of course, say that I'm speaking here purely in a personal capacity. So it might be worthwhile to just sort of define the terms about what private equity is, because I confess, you know, I didn't really know what private equity was. You know, I'd heard the term for years, but didn't really know what it was until I was, you know, about a third of the way through this project. So I don't think anybody should feel guilty for not knowing that. The basic idea behind private equity is very simple. Private equity firms use a little bit of their own money, some borrowed money, and some investor money to buy up companies. They then try to make, you know, financial or operational changes with the goal of trying to sell them for a profit a few years later. So that's a very simple idea, but for reasons that I'm sure we can talk about, it often has bad consequences for investors, for consumers, for employees, sometimes for the economy overall. Now, how did private equity to your question become sort of this raging bull? It's really interesting. I think there's a lot of sort of wonky answers about changes to ERISA statutes and, you know, low interest rates set by the Fed and so forth. But I think the simple sort of foundational answer is that private equity is a business model that was really invented by lawyers and regulators, you know, people that, you know, look like me and have had jobs similar to me. And it's really allowed a business model that isn't necessarily an extreme form of capitalism, but more a perversion of it to really take over a large percentage of our economy. I think back on this, and you mentioned it briefly in the book,
0: there is a book called Barbarians at the Gate about the takeover of R.J.R. Nabisco, and it's also a great movie starring James Garner, Fred Thompson, all these other people. Just, I mean, they were just brilliant in it, but this was sort of the leveraged buyout. The idea, which was, you talked about the buyout, but the leveraged piece is they're using a little bit of their own money and they're using a whole heck of a lot of somebody else's money.
1: That's exactly right. And it's a really interesting sort of financial or legal magic trick, which is private equity firms only have to put up a little bit of their own capital in order to buy a business. What they mostly do is borrow money to buy the company. But here's the sort of magic part of this is that when they borrow the money, the responsibility to pay it back isn't held by the private equity firm. It's held by the company that they buy. And so what that means is if their investment fails. If the changes that they try to make or the money that they try to extract doesn't work out as they plan and the company falls apart, the private equity firm, by and large, isn't responsible for paying back the debt. So it's a sort of heads I win tails-you-lose sort of situation.
0: And you know, having been part of a PR firm that had been rolled up, as you call it, right, which is they had bought a whole collection of similar firms over the years. And, and look, you know, they're holding companies, right? the company i worked for was part of omnicom which is a massive holding company of all these other sort of media type companies and i used to say and we're going to play a clip here brennan which i hope you'll appreciate where it's like it didn't really matter to them like how you were doing personally they wanted their money and they were going to get their money one way or the other And rob can we go ahead and play the clip that i asked you to
2: pull now the guy's got poly as a partner Any problems, he goes to Paulie. Trouble with the bill, he can go to Paulie. Trouble with the cops, deliveries, Tommy, he can call Paulie. But now the guy's got to come up with Paulie's money every week, no matter what. Business bad? Fuck you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? Fuck you, pay me. One of those TVs? No, I'd so good break any Also, Paulie could do anything, especially run up bills on the joint's credit. And why not? Nobody's going to pay for it anyway. And as soon as the deliveries are made in the front door, you move this stuff out the back and sell it at a discount. You take a $200 case of booze and you sell it for a 100 doesn't matter. It's all profit. Finally, and there's nothing left fucking shame. And you can't borrow another buck from the bank or buy another case of booze. You bust the joint out. You light a match.
0: All right. So that is from one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion, Goodfellas, explaining what happens when the guy who owns the bar goes into business with the mob boss. But throughout the course of your book, Brendan, this sounds an awful lot like what private equity companies do to the companies they buy.
1: Yeah, I love that you played that quote. You are not the first person to reference that exact Goodfellas quote to me. And I think it's really interesting that the book sort of inspires that same idea in folks. And obviously, I love Goodfellas. I'll tell a quick story of sort of how this works in action. And we'll get a little in the weeds here, but I think it's useful for folks. You know, we start off by talking about Carlisle's acquisition of HCR ManorCare, which was the second largest nursing home chain in America. And Carlisle is a massive
0: private equity firm formed in Washington, D.C. So it is, you know, by a guy, David Rubenstein, who worked in government, understood the nature of the connection to government, having important people either in office or former government officials around that could create this sort of wave of inevitability. And now they're a massive private equity firm. So go ahead.
1: So Carlisle, this massive private equity firm, buys up ManorCare, which is this nursing home chain, and they execute a lot of tactics that people are really critical of. They do something called a sale leaseback, where they require ManorCare to sell all the buildings that it owned and then lease them back. So you know now they're required to pay every month or every quarter for something that used to just be theirs, but it gave a quick hit of cash to Carlisle. They did things like have transaction fees and management fees. Management fees were essentially money that the nursing home chain had to pay for the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm. They cut staffing. And as a result, unsurprisingly, health code violations or complaints spiked. Now, here's where we get sort of into Goodfellas territory. I, I, as a lawyer, I want to be careful and I don't want to overstate my case here. At least one person died in one of these facilities. But when their family sued Carlyle, the private equity firm, to try to recover, Carlisle was able to get the case against it dismissed. And it did that by saying that it was not the technical owner of the nursing home chain. Instead, it merely advised a series of funds whose limited partners through several shell companies ultimately owned the nursing home chain. And that was enough to get the case against it dismissed. And the private equity firm, Carlisle, was never held directly responsible for that person's death. And so, you know, to go back to the Goodfellas story, it's a situation where. You know, firms can profit enormously off these sale leasebacks, off these various fees. But when push comes to shove, oftentimes they're just not held accountable.
0: This is one of those, you know, broader issues that I think, Brennan, is affecting us as a nation, which is a lack of accountability by those who have the most power and the most money. And obviously, not surprisingly, throughout history, those things are intrinsically tied to one another. And so my question is this, is to your point, you talked about the lawyers, right? And We know what Shakespeare said about lawyers, is there are firms that you mentioned as well who employ hundreds, if not thousands of attorneys who spend all day basically engineering this invisibility cloak that these firms take advantage of. And I think the other part, too, that is interesting in this, and I, and I want to get to this a little bit, too, is that not only are they sucking as much money out of this and they're demanding cost cuts to increase profits or increase revenue anyway but it also turns out that because they're just going and gobbling up stuff they're not subject matter experts in actually running a nursing home right now maybe they know about the industry maybe they're experts in understanding the industry inflow outflow patient numbers, locations, zip codes, property values, right? They can quantify assets, but they're not actually very good at running these companies in a lot of cases, but maybe they don't care either.
1: Well, you look at the backgrounds of the people that run private equity firms, and it's not a surprise. You know, they don't necessarily come from backgrounds in engineering, sales, logistics, marketing, anything like that. They come from financial backgrounds. And so the changes they try to make on these companies tend to be financial ones. And when they're put in the position of actually trying to make operational changes, often it really has disastrous effects. The New York Times had this really great story about a series of private equity firms that bought up Payless Shoe Source. And you know, after they did, they put an investment banker in charge of the company who had all these ideas like, for instance, closing down a quality control shop in China that made sure that the shoes were the right size and so forth. Well, as soon as they did that, the shoes started coming at the wrong size and so forth, and it obviated any cost savings that they had by shutting down the quality control shop. And that's one example of many, many ones that are out there.
0: But let me ask you that this because I think there's also an inherent arrogance that is evident in all this too, which is whether or not you're sitting in Washington, D.C., New York City, L.A., wherever it is, is that if you're the new owner of Payless Shoe Source and you're the guy that's been now tapped to run it, you've never shopped at Payless. Your family's never shopped at Payless. You're never going to shop at Payless. So there's an arrogance, not only in that you know better, but also that you probably look down at the people, A, that work there, and B, the people that shop
1: there. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that same article said that the executives that were coming in from this private equity firm or appointed by them said that they were, quote, thought that we were idiots because we lived in the Midwest. There were really interesting stories when Sun Capital bought up Marsh Supermarkets, which was based primarily in Indiana. You know, store clerks were saying, you know, these guys, quote, didn't know what a UPC code was, but they're spending all their time on a yacht. So it's interesting, you know, when you talk to the advocates of private equity, David Rubenstein, who you mentioned earlier, calls it, you know, the highest calling of mankind. The former head of Yale's endowment said that it was a, quote, superior form of capitalism. I don't want to make a blanket statement about everyone in the industry, but I think oftentimes there's a sort of sense that we really are the masters of the universe. And that may be true in terms of compensation, but not necessarily true in terms of expertise or the ability to run these businesses.
0: So let me, let me take one step back. If you're Marsh Supermarkets, or let's call it any family-owned or relatively you know, privately held, or even you know, small publicly held company, why sell? If you've got 25 or 30 stores across two or three states, your employees are happy, you're happy, Are you sitting on a yacht? You're not, right? But that's never been your thing. It's been organic growth. It's been, you've had
1: people that work for you for 25, 30 years. Why sell? It's a great question. And it varies by person. You know, sometimes it's the owner of a small dentistry practice who's ready to retire and needs an exit option, and private equity presents, you know, a good paycheck. I think the, more unfortunate answer is a lot of times with these bigger companies, you know, the executives are compensated in large part in stock or equity in the company. And when the company is bought, they are going to get a very large payout. So whether or not the purchase by the private equity firm really makes sense for the company in the long term, the executives of the company probably stand to make a lot of money in the short term. And so it may be good for the folks at the very top of a business, but for workers, for customers, it might not be.
0: And so you go through, you know, several different massive sectors in the country. But the one that you you go through first, retail, you know, really hit home for me, and that was Toys R Us because I have Brennan fond memories of Saturdays and or Sundays at Toys R Us. This was a, a storied franchise, right? Or a storied company that every kid in America knew and wanted to go to. They wanted to be the super center of toys. And these guys come in and I didn't realize until I read your book how long some individual employees worked for Toys R Us. You're a seven-year-old kid buying G.I. Joe. like, you don't know. But give us the example of Toys R Us and how it worked and how it ended up.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think when people think about the failure of Toys R Us, the media coverage tends to focus on Amazon. They say, well, Toys R Us got beaten by you know, dominant e-commerce. You know, they just couldn't catch up. Frankly, I'm not sure that was entirely true the last year that Toys R Us was in existence, as I understand it, it was a profitable company. The challenge that you had was in, I believe, 2007, a triumvirate of private equity firms bought up the company and loaded it up with massive debt. I think that they were paying hundreds of millions of dollars in interest payments alone, which meant that they couldn't invest in operations. It meant that they couldn't expand meaningfully into online retailing. They were really just almost tragic sort of Vignettes of what it was like in Toys R Us in those last days about how they cut down on janitorial staff so dust would cover up the toys and things like that. Ultimately, the private equity firms pushed Toys R Us into bankruptcy. I think one of the most shocking elements of that was, at least as alleged, it was never finally adjudicated because they settled out of court. It was alleged that the executives who were installed by private equity firms essentially engineered a bailout for themselves shortly before declaring bankruptcy ultimately getting several million dollars that they probably would not have gotten in bankruptcy. And then, again, this is allegations, not proven, but as alleged in the complaint, ultimately lied to employees about whether or not they were going to get those bonuses. Now, that was never finalized, but if it's true, it's a very disheartening perspective to take as an executive of, you know, to your point, a beloved institution.
0: Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. I have to say this, and I want to be a fan of humanity, Brendan, but some of the stories in here can make it pretty tough because it seems to me that the private equity industry has appeared to find from the highest Manhattan skyscraper to the call center collections agency, people who are absolutely willing to act in their least decent instincts on any given day, whether they're making... A billion dollars a year, a million dollars a year, where they're making a hundred thousand dollars a year or fifty thousand dollars a year running call centers. Like some of the ways that these people are happy, maybe they're not happy, but willing, I said maybe is a better word, to treat people who are often living paycheck to paycheck if they're lucky, who get surprised medical bills, or having to deal with a parent who died, an elderly parent who died in a nursing home that had been stripped to the gills, right? Did you get any sense of why people are willing to do this? Look, I get it. There's the famous movie, Thank You for Smoking. I got to pay the mortgage. I get
1: it. But what does that do to a person? I always think that people respond to incentives. And, you know, humans are always going to be greedy. They're going to be narcissistic. You know, they're going to be selfish. We're not going to change human nature anytime soon. But, Those instincts can sometimes be channeled in productive ways. You know, if you build the rules of society right, you know, people are building great businesses that last for the long term, that benefit themselves and benefit society. Or we can organize it in a destructive way where people's worst instincts can be brought out to extract money from a company, from a business, you know, from other people. And the challenge is, I say this as a lawyer you know, we lawyers have a tendency to invent a bad business model about every 20 years that encourages people's worst instincts. You know, right now, I would argue it's private equity. 20 years ago, it was subprime lenders. 40 years ago, it was savings and loans. 60 years ago, it was conglomerates. 100 years ago, it was trusts. It's just something that we do. And, you know, the work that we have to do is how do we change those incentives in our laws and our regulations? so that people are actually thinking you know, for the long term and sort of channeling their instincts to something productive.
0: Well, because you know, the idea here is, you know, there's this whole idea you know, that, I don't know if it's popular anymore, but it was you know, when the tech industry was really taking off, you know, there was the move fast and break things, which the private equity guys seem to have mastered, but also this idea of creative destruction, right? There were old ways of doing things that were sclerotic and needed to be updated, and that wasn't always gonna be a pretty process. But this is destructive destruction, destruction for its own sake, which is I'm going to go buy company A and I'm going to go do all these things, going to cut service, going to cut employees, going to screw them out of pensions. Customers are going to be unhappy. Patients are going to be unhappy. And then, you know, I'll leave the parts to the dustbin of history. I've got my lawyers who've engineered all this stuff, so I'm not even liable. But. I'm also too big to fail now, which means that I'm going to take all the profit for myself. But if and when it goes south, I'm going to make sure that somebody's there to back me up. And it's going to be
1: the same people who I just threw out of their house. You touched on pensions, and maybe that's a good way to sort of talk about, I think, the larger point that you're making, which is, you know, one of the stories that really struck me is the diner chain Friendlies, which was a big deal in the Northeast, you know, a few decades ago. Private equity firm Sun Capital bought it up executed a lot of the tactics that we were talking about in terms of sale, leasebacks, and various fees that they were extracting and so forth, ultimately pushed the company into bankruptcy. But the funny thing is Sun Capital wasn't just Friendly's owner, it was also the company's largest lender. And if you're familiar with bankruptcy, it's sort of like an hourglass that flips. And what happened is by being the owner and the lender, they were able to sell Friendly's from itself to itself. Very complicated move. And the reason that they did that was that it was a way to push off pension obligations that the company had onto what's called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. So Sun Capital, the private equity firm, was able to hold onto the company, but now it no longer had incentives. You know, had the responsibility to these pension holders. And so I think to get to your broader point here, I think we've engineered, to use your word, a lot of laws that allow private equity firms to really succeed if something works in a business, sometimes even if it doesn't. But when things go badly, essentially get to walk away and when you've got that kind of legal heads i win tails you lose sort of situation it's just going to have bad consequences
0: this is my point is again i consider myself a free market person i do not consider myself an unfettered capitalist because we've seen multiple times what happens you mentioned you know at the beginning of the 20th century right it was both roosevelt and taft that came in and broke up the trusts to your point about the savings and loan situation of what that was the Late 80s, early 90s. And obviously the Great Recession was built on a bunch of guys pumping up loans. But that's the other part too, which is, you know, they're finding people who are saying, okay, what's this company really worth? Oh, it's this multiple of two, three, four, five, whatever. They basically just make it up. And then they go to like cut rate people to you know, give them an idea of what it's really worth, right? They don't go to Moody's or Standard & Poor's. They go to Bob's Rating Agency. And of course, Bob's Rating Agency wants the business. So they're going to say, yeah, this is a great business. You should buy this. And then when you're going to sell it, it's worth even more.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're hitting on a really interesting point, which is, you know, private equity used to just be in the business of buying companies. But now they're in the business of what's called private credit. So making loans to businesses. And to do that, you need to have ratings agencies. And at least as alleged, they may be relying on sort of these second tier ratings agencies to say that loans might be more reliable than they actually are. This is really a question for a financier, not for a lawyer like me. But, you know, there's a concern that this is going to create an asset bubble, you know, maybe not the same size as the housing crisis, but, you know, potentially could have big repercussions, you know, just beyond just these individual private equity companies. To your point, I think it's really interesting that I think private equity firms really are becoming the new financial behemoths. In a lot of ways, they've replaced the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgans of the world, but they're dramatically less regulated. And so you have a situation where a lot of money is flowing to these institutions, but not a lot of transparency. And I think as we've seen over several decades, often that has very bad outcomes.
0: Well, and, you know, to me, that's one thing you noted and you brought, I think you brought it well together, which is I mentioned the trust busting era of the early 20th century. As you said, we have like three cable companies, three phone companies. We've got Amazon, we've got Google, and they all do multiple things. You know, I guess maybe Microsoft was a big deal like 25 years ago, but the antitrust regulators, you you are an antitrust regulator, right? Don't seem to have either a lot of wherewithal, and I don't want to be insulting when I say that, or a lot of opportunity given the givens. I mean, I think one of the last ones I saw that was up for debate was whether or not like Simon & Schuster could buy up yet another book company. Like, do we need more than one publishing company? I think we probably do. Is that the one that I feel like is
1: at the tip of like the economic spear for the average American? Like, I don't. It's interesting. You know, one of the challenges in sort of thinking about antitrust for private equity is, you know, the enforcement agencies, and obviously I'm somewhat limited in what I can say on this stuff, it, generally you kind of want to go after the biggest deals because they're probably going to have the biggest effect on the economy. But oftentimes what private equity is doing is going after little businesses. You know, They're buying up all the veterinary clinics in your town, or they're buying up all the anesthesiology or emergency medicine clinics. Those cases are very hard to spot, and they're even harder to pursue. And so what that means is, We've got those sort of big ticket levels of concentration that you're talking about, about, you know, we only have so many pharmaceutical companies. We only have so many airlines. I think day to day, what probably affects people the most is like, how many veterinary clinics do you have left? You know, how many OBGYN clinics do you have left? And what effect is that having on the price you pay, on the quality of care and how well employees are being treated? Let me ask you this because you spend a fair amount of time on the
0: medical industry. And not only on the billing piece of it and ambulances, but also on the care piece, which is, you know, doctors rightly so live by a different set of standards than the rest of us when they go to work, which is first do no harm. So how does a doctor or a nurse or anybody who has pledged an oath to make sure that somebody who is sick or in need of aid will get it? How do they contend with this? Because that's got to be not only a practical concern, but it's got to be a, a huge moral and professional concern for them as well.
1: Yeah. I'm glad that you use the phrase moral and professional because, you know, reading and, and talking to folks in the medical profession about this problem, I think they think about in that in those terms. You know, private equity firms have been very active in buying up what are called physician staffing companies, which essentially staff doctors in emergency rooms and so forth. And sort of the trick of the business model is you staff somebody outside of your Provider network. So you go to an emergency room that you think is in your network. It turns out it's being staffed by a doctor that isn't. You pay an out of network rate. That's sort of the business model. Interestingly, a number of doctors from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine sued one of the private equity firms, saying that sort of the business model that they were perpetuating violated state corporate practice and medicine laws, essentially saying that private equity firms were making medical decisions on behalf of doctors and other healthcare professionals. I think that particular case got dismissed, but as I understand it, this is a really big problem in the healthcare industry which is, you know, you have to go back to our earlier point. People with finance backgrounds essentially making medical decisions and you just to hammer the point home, Bloomberg had a really interesting story about PE getting into dermatology and they said that these private equity firms were you know, so focused on cutting costs that they made the medical decision to buy cheap needles, needles that were so cheap that they would break off in people's arms and bodies. So sometimes these have very practical consequences for people. I think so. But the flip side of that, and and you spurred my thinking when you
0: said, I think that case was dismissed. I don't know if it's three times, five times, eight times, but the expression settled without admission of guilt is peppered throughout here. And I'll tell you, now, as someone who reads a lot of news, I see that far more than I think I want, I should and I want to. And it could be these guys or it could be when, like, was it HSBC got caught for laundering money for the Iranians and the drug cartels, like settled without admission of guilt. Like a few weeks ago, Brennan, I had a guy uh, named Sam Quinones on the show, and he's done extensive reporting and research on the opioid epidemic in this country. No one from Sackler went to prison. Now, they're not private equity, but they're acting in a similar sort of rapacious way, which is not our fault. And they pay these hundreds of millions of dollars in civil penalties. But, you know, you go through a lot of very thoughtful and practical ways of pushing back on this stuff.
1: But how about sending a few of these guys to jail? Yeah. You know, I I hadn't really thought about how often I use that phrase. But now that I'm thinking about it, it probably came up a lot in the book. The challenge that I think folks that are suing private equity have is, I mean, bluntly, how much money private equity has. I remember when some pensioners tried to sue Sun Capital over, you know, what for Sun Capital was really a rounding error. I think it was about $4.5 million. Sun Capital spent 10 years litigating the case and ultimately won. It went up on appeal twice. I mean, they probably spent more money litigating it than the money was at issue. But they were able to do that because they had the money to really drag this out in a way that retirees, you know, you think about 10 years of a retiree's life, they quite literally don't have the time to litigate these things. To go back to a point that you were making earlier, private equity has really been a transformative part of the legal industry as a whole. You know, large law firms have really pivoted to focus, maybe not a majority, but a large part of their businesses are now focused on servicing private equity firms, either on the deal side or on the litigation side. So they're genuinely able to access, if not the best lawyers in the, in the country, certainly the highest paid.
0: Thinking about this now as we bring private equity and the government sphere together, not in an electoral capacity, but in a regulatory, in a policy, and a legislative capacity, you think back to Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan. This thing is ever-growing, and it's eventually going to take us all over. And you think about all of the ideas of the push and pull of what governance means versus what the freedom of its people means. And this is a philosophical argument that we don't have to get into today and we don't have time. But the point is the citizen in a perfect world says, I am going to elect a representative who has my interests at heart and the government is going to provide me protection, a rule of law and a common standard by which we all operate so that it is fair. And I put fair in air quotes because I'm not a Pollyanna. This book strikes against all of that, which is the private equity guys, they are so tied in to the government, whether or not that's regulators, legislators, the armies of lobbyists, Right? they have 7x the number of lobbyists for the private equity than exist members of Congress. And so to me, at some point, if you are someone who had a heart attack and had to go to an emergency room. And you get a $137,000 bill that no one told you about and said, is my insurance going to cover this as you tell one story, right? Or if it's the needles breaking in somebody's arm, somebody dying at the nursing home, the pensions going away, all of this stuff has impact on real life human beings. The 329,500,000 Americans who aren't these guys. And so to me, Are we so far afield from a regulatory and a legislative perspective that this is okay? Because you know what? I'll tell you this: There's 435 members of the House. There's 100 members of the United States Senate, and I would venture to say that maybe 25 of them in the House and maybe 10 of them in the Senate represent the vast majority of these people. I'm talking about the private equity guys.
1: Yeah, you know, and I'm glad that you used the phrase Pollyanna. I use that too and say, I'm trying not to be Pollyanna-ish about this, but I do think that there is some reason for hope. Let me start with the negative and then I'll go to the positive. On the negative side, private equity firms are enormously successful in their lobbying efforts. And partly that's because of the bench that they've got. They have at various times employed former secretaries of treasury, state defense, a former vice president, two former speakers of the house, any number of senators and congresspeople, a former CIA director, a number of generals, I could keep going on and on. The effect of that has been that I think that they have been just enormously successful in advancing their various policy agendas through the arms of federal and state government. So that's the negative side. The positive side is if it looks hopeless, if it looks like we're not in a position to really make change here, I will say we have done this once before. Private equity firms have a stunning sort of legal similarity to the trusts of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You know, really, they're organized in very similar ways and have very similar effects on the economy. But we actually managed to constrain the power of the trust. It took a long time, it took a lot of legislation, but ultimately we established the FTC, the SEC, the first labor and environmental laws, the graduated income tax and so forth. all of these things contributed to building a fairer economy. Now, that's not to say that we will necessarily do that again, but I think that there's some reason for hope, because at least once we have.
0: I mean, I guess my thing too is they use all the hordes of lobbyists and you know we've gotten close to doing a couple of things, relatively speaking, not groundbreaking, and they get killed at the last second. We saw uh, Arizona Senator Kristen Cinema last year, right? She was a deciding vote on the Inflation Reduction Act, and it was only when she carried the water for carried interest, which is how so many of these guys pay a much lower effective tax rate than you and me pay, that it got done which was, let the rich guys keep their money and we'll give the poor people some money. And I hate to be so blunt about it, but I'm not sure that there's
1: any other way to describe it. When people think about the necessity for change here, they naturally, understandably look to Congress. And I think when you look to Congress, there's a lot of disappointing stories out there. You know, like you just mentioned the story about carried interest. There are sort of similarly tough stories about surprise medical billing and so forth, although there's been some progress there. I say this to people. Yes, changing Congress is necessary. Ultimately, I think that's where a lot of action is going to happen. But there are a lot of levers in power to affect change here. You know, at the federal level, we're talking about federal regulators, both directly part of the executive and independent, whether it's the SEC, Treasury, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Also the state and local level. You know, some of the abusive tactics that we've been talking about can be outlawed by states and localities in their jurisdictions. Also private litigants and activists. I have to say, I think activists have been enormously successful at constraining private equity on specific issues, you know, whether it's constraining the cost of prison phone calls or looking at minimum staffing criteria for nursing homes, which we were talking about earlier. I think when folks have focused on specific issues, they've actually been really successful. And you know, maybe they don't have the money that private equity does, but they've got the people on their side. And that's the other thing too, is you know, if you're Stephen Schwartzman, who runs Blackstone,
0: right? Like you've got your names all over these buildings, but you still don't want to be called a murderer. Right. There are certain things that like you don't want to have to go to the Met opening or whatever and say, hey, Steve, you know, saw that. That can't be too much fun. Right. Because these guys do consider themselves masters of the universe. And we live in such an incredible time of there's no shortage of media outlets. Right. Anybody that picks up an iPhone or a Samsung, right, is now a media content creator. And so that's something these guys probably believe they're not accountable to. But let me ask you this, and I do want to end on a positive note, but I'm going to ask one more tough question before we do that, which is I'm concerned about, and this is I think something Roosevelt saw and Taft saw too, is we got an awful lot of big right now. And it's big and oftentimes for its own sake. And it's big, not for the purposes of being more efficient, whatever anybody says, or innovation, because we know innovation and big don't often go together, but just for the sake of being that. Again, it could be private equity, it could be Google, it could be Meta, it could be any of them. So, my question is for these companies, is it ever enough? Is it ever enough to say, I've done this enough?
1: Well, you know, it's the nature of being in business that people are going to say it's never enough. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. People should be competitive. You know, I consider myself a capitalist just like you do. And I think people should be thinking about how do I always make a better business and so forth. I think the challenge that we've got here is we've built an incentive structure that isn't about how do I build a better product? It's not even really about how do I build a bigger company? You know, sometimes private equity firms care about that. Sometimes they don't. It's really about how do I extract as much money from this business and do it as quickly as possible? And until we change those legal incentives, I think it's going to create, you know, by and large, bigger companies, you know, like you just said, it's also going to create less efficient companies. And if you're worried about, you know, America's global competitiveness, for instance, you want an economic system that works. You know, if you care about, you know, the long term innovation for your kids, you want these laws to be, you know, properly aligned. So there's certainly a lot of work to be done here.
0: You know, I just saw this news, and this isn't private equity, but again, it goes to the bigness and the post shame, post you know, accountability phase of, of the world we're in at the moment. You know, Bank of America just paid like a five hundred million dollar fine for opening accounts without their customers knowing. And that goes back to my accountability thing, which is, Brennan, someone said, do that. You know, I had a friend who used to work at Wells Fargo when they paid their tellers so little, but they were offering $50 bonuses for every account opened. And all these people had accounts open and then they were getting fees and everything else. And I said to him, you know, between the financial meltdown, the stuff like Wells, the stuff like private equity, I said, you know, the next time you guys do this and the whole thing comes crashing down, like the torches and the pitchforks may come out and I'm not going to feel bad for you. And like, that's, that's the wrong place for us to be, but it has to be, to me, there has to be an understanding of like, okay, you're rich, you're powerful, you control all this stuff. But let me just tell you something. This, if you do not let some steam out of the system, if you do not give it an escape valve, then bad things will happen either because people are, have had it or because like we saw, as you noted with the uh, subprime mortgage stuff, it gets too big and there's no possible way. Anybody and Jamie Diamond from JP Morgan just said this. When you become the head of a very large company, there are necessarily a lot of things you don't know anymore. And it's always the things that you don't know that get you in the
1: most trouble. My book started with a quote from Lewis Brandeis, who, you know, is a hero of mine. He says, you know, we must break the money trusted, the money trust will break us. And I think that's the philosophy of this entire project, which is You know, we have a system right now that is encouraging bigness, that's encouraging interconnectedness, that's encouraging inefficiency. And unless we can wrap our arms around it and change it, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. And I will say this, all good things come from the bottom, typically, Brendan.
0: And as you noted, and you you mentioned a lot of folks doing incredible work, and I've met folks like this that are activists, you know, in the policy space, in the political space, I've taken them on in my career. And I will say this is that they are rarely ever well-funded, right? They never have enough people. They never have enough time. They always have too much work because there are so many things that come through their door and they want to take on every single one of them because that's the service they do to humanity. And I would say this, I'm glad that you mentioned those people because it is those people that do give me hope that, you know, we will learn collectively how to say, all right, enough is enough. I'm not saying you're not going to make a lot of money. Go make a lot of money. You figured it out. But you know what? When it comes to granny falling down and hitting her head on the sink and nobody pays attention to her, like, you're not going to get away with that anymore. And you know what, Brennan? That's not an unreasonable request.
1: No. I, too, have been completely heartened by what I've been seeing activists do on some of these issues. And I'll say, you know, I've been really encouraged that activists have been coming from sort of across the political spectrum here, you know, whether you're a Reagan Republican or a, DSA socialist, I think you should care about, you know, what I always call, you know, a deviation or perversion of capitalism. You know, it's in everybody's interest to have a system that works. Well, amen to that. So Brendan, tell us, can you be found online? If so, where? And what else are you working on that you could tell us about? So I can be found online. I think I'm Brendan Ballew on Twitter, although I rarely tweet. And I think we've got a website, plunderthebook.com. Most importantly, I can be found wherever a book is sold hopefully we can get you interested in that. In terms of what I'm working on next, I have a day job and the development of a second book proposal. So maybe in two years, we can talk again once that thing gets off the ground. Well, we'd love to have you back.
0: As always, this was fabulous. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram and threads now, Brendan, get on threads, Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Brendan Ballou, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit LincolnProject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.